on today's show, a lot of people scratching their heads over the United States government going to OPEC and asking them to increase oil production. There's a new report detailing how Canadian-made weapons are allegedly fueling the war in Yemen and an interesting decision from a judge in Canada saying the Trudeau government can no longer freeze out pro-development First Nations. We're paying very, very high gas prices right now in Alberta. We're not alone. Um, gas prices are up right across the board, including in the United States, going about 3 bucks, $3.17 a gallon, up about 40% for the year. Of course, it's the summer driving season, the pressure on the U.S. president to try and get a little relief at the pump. So he tried to do that yesterday. I'm sure you've heard he uh, and his administration went to OPEC saying, you know what, you need to increase production. You need to get more oil onto the market so we can bring down gas prices. And immediately the feedback came and it was harsh and it was severe from both sides of the border and beyond. People saying, how on earth can you go to OPEC asking them to increase oil supply when you have closed leases on federal land in the United States and, of course, canceled Keystone XL just six months ago. That would have handled a lot of the problems the United States is facing right now. So that is the lay of the land. And um, one of the people that's been very outspoken about this announcement yesterday is Alberta's Energy Minister, Sonia Savage. And she joins us now to tell us a bit more about uh, our province's reaction to this word out of the United States yesterday. Minister, thank you for joining us this morning. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me today. Um, criticism coming from far and wide, pretty harsh, pretty severe, including from Alberta. It just, um, it's really hard to try and wrap your head around how six months after cancelling Keystone and shutting down um, leases in the United States, now you're going to OPEC and asking them to increase demand. Just give us your take uh, as the Energy Minister of Alberta. Well, sure. I, I woke up yesterday morning to, to see that news, and I, I guess I said, what the heck? I thought I'd seen it all before, but then there was was yesterday, and the first thing that it, it came across my mind is how this is the height of hypocrisy. It highlighted all sorts of hypocrisy. The cancellation of KXL on its first day in office because of concerns, concerns with climate change and fossil fuel production, and then six months later begging, the, begging OPEC to increase production because they needed more fossil fuel production to keep gas prices down. So it's just it's just a height of hypocrisy, and it, it emphasized all sorts of hypocrisy. It happened again two days after the IPC, IPCC report um, from the United Nations that came out and said that uh, it basically said there's a code red for for uh, climate change, mm-hmm. and fossil fuels needed to be phased out now. The uh, Biden administration uh, jumped to that and said, yes, we have to phase it out. In fact, we're going to phase out. Uh, 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 internal combustion engine cars, uh, and we're going to have fossil-free electricity by 2035. And then, a very two days later, says we need more fossil fuel production. So it's extremely hypocritical. And you know, I mean, Keystone XL is is one part of this. It's not the the be all and the end all. I mean, you, you know, closing down the leases on federal land and things like that also has mm-hmm. has limited what the United States can do. I mean, they they've gone from a net exporter to a net importer in, in about a year. Um, so they've yeah. got their own issues. But doesn't it just speak to the fact when you're going to OPEC? And this is the the message that I think Alberta Oil and Gas ha- has done an okay job, but could do a better job of is saying, listen. This demand is there. It needs to be supplied. And you can pick and choose where you're going to get your oil from. Why on earth would you go to Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, and Russia, these kinds of places, when you can be getting it from 
Canada, where, you know, in terms of environmental standards and human rights and all the rest of those things, those other countries don't care about that stuff. No, and I think uh, another hypocrisy that uh, yesterday highlighted was that after more than a decade of a campaign to landlock Alberta, coming largely out of U.S.-funded environmental organizations, what have they really accomplished? Well, they've uh, land they've they've cancelled pipeline projects and caused unbelievable harm to Alberta's energy sector and jobs here in Alberta and and Albertans. But they haven't left a single barrel of oil in the ground. All they've done is they've shifted more barrels to OPEC country and had zero impact on global production of oil or climate change. And that highlighted that pretty strongly yesterday. So you're right. Uh, global demand for oil is global. It's global. Mm-hmm. And that production has to come from somewhere. And if it doesn't come from Alberta, it's going to go to other competing jurisdictions who don't produce it with the highest environmental standards. Certainly none of them produce it as, with uh uh, an aim for net zero production like we have here in the oil sands with the initiative from the Pathway Initiative to get to net zero branded oil sands production by 2050. There's no other nation on the world that has that goal or that ambition. So um, it is, it's, it's just shameful. It's shameful what's happening. Is there a possibility here? Is this not an opportunity rather than calling it hypocritical and ironic and, and pointing, you know, sort of you know, I don't want to say disrespectful, but you know what I mean. Taking that tact rather than saying, um, wait a minute here. And because this is about hearts and minds, that's why this decision was made in the U.S. because of the environmental movement and the political pressure that Joe Biden was under. Is this not an opportunity to sort of inject ourselves into that conversation and say, listen, we want to work with you on the transition, but it's a transition. It's not an overnight. And in the meantime, we're your best source to sell that message. It's a huge opportunity for Alberta because what what yesterday showed was that um, uh, climate climate change and lowering emissions in the world can't be solved by asking people to reduce their standard of living by asking people to by by making energy unaffordable. It has to come through innovation and technology, and that's what we're doing in Alberta is investing in innovation and in technology to for our industry to get to net zero things like carbon capture utilization and storage. We're moving rapidly to tra- to uh, production of hydrogen. We're looking at lower sources of, of production of energy, and we're getting there. In fact, there's no jurisdiction in the world that has a better geology for carbon capture utilization and storage than Alberta. So I think it's a huge opportunity for us. And we're, we're not lagging on it. In fact, the industry has been leaders on it, and we've been investing in it for more than a decade. So where do you think we go from here? I mean, obviously, Keystone is dead, but uh, when we talk about the opportunity, what, where are the possibilities for us to sort of step up and become a bigger player with the United States and at least make the case that we can be? Well, I think we've got, um, I mean, we are the largest exporter of, of world production oil in the world. We, ha- we hold the third largest reserves here in Alberta, third largest global reserves of, uh, of oil, and it's owned by Albertans under the Constitution. It belongs to Albertans, and we take it very proudly. We're very proud of the innovation and technology in our in our industry. But if we uh, want to continue to be uh, suppliers of choice, we have to keep with it on technology and innovation and move to get to net zero. 
So I think we have to, to have all hands on deck. We need to do everything we possibly can to ensure we can get the carbon out of the, out of the oil, get the carbon out of the natural gas, and that's going to involve an enormous, uh, enormous investment in things like carbon capture and storage. Uh, Minister, I know you only have a few minutes, so I appreciate you joining us this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you. That is Energy Minister Sonia Savage for the province of Al- This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Alberta. Right now, though, we're going to talk about another situation that um, is really quite alarming. Uh, it's not something we hear a lot about in this country, but there are groups that are working on it. So we're going to have a discussion about uh, Yemen right now. Iran and Saudi Arabia have been waging a proxy war in Yemen for more than five years now, and it's brutal. Uh, Houthi rebels that are backed by Iran have been battling against Yemeni government forces, which are backed by Saudi Arabia. To this point, almost a quarter of a million lives have been lost. The UN currently calls this the world's worst humanitarian crisis. Um, and Canada, whether the government wants to admit it or not, is wrapped up in all of this thanks to some pretty lucrative arms deals with the Saudis. Uh, the way it worked is in 2014, the Harper government approved billions in sales to the Saudis. In 2015, the Liberals gave the deal its final approval... Despite, as we know, and we've already talked about today, Saudi Arabia's atrocious human rights record. Um, Last year, Global Affairs Canada, the government performed a review of the situation, and they announced there was no credible evidence that Canadian weapons were being used in ways that violated human rights in this conflict. Well, a report released this week calls that into question and provides some pretty damning proof that, yeah, that's not at all what is going on. So to get details on uh, this situation, we're joined now by Kelsey Gallagher, who is a researcher with Project Plowshares and co-author of this report. Uh, Kelsey, thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Now, this report that your agency provides um, contains a lot of pretty indisputable proof, I would say, that Canadian arms are indeed being used in the conflict in Yemen, right? Uh, yes, that, that was our finding, yeah. Um, in terms of what we're seeing, let's just go through the equipment. Now, the, equi- the equipment isn't being used by Saudi forces, right? What we're talking about here is diversion. The arms that we sold to the Saudis have been diverted to the Yemen forces um, to be used in this conflict. Do I have that right? So that's one part of it. Um, there's reason to believe that Canadian weapons uh, have been used both by Saudi Arabia and by Yemeni forces uh, within Yemen itself. Um, Canada's justification last year, which you brought up, the, the final report into the review of uh, export permits to Saudi Arabia, made contradictory statements as to whether or not um, Canadian light-armored vehicles, LAVs, which is the equipment uh, in question, mm-hmm. were actually being used in cross-border operations by Saudi Arabia. 
Uh, there's reason to believe that both Saudi Arabia and, as you know, uh, Yemeni forces are indeed using Canadian weapons, uh, LAVs, as well as uh, Winnipeg-made sniper rifles uh, within Yemen. And uh, as you know, once again, that, that is what we refer to as diversion, which is the illicit rerouting of weapons from the intended recipient, in this case being Saudi Arabia, to an unauthorized third party, in this case being Yemeni forces. Okay, now... I mean, this may seem like a dumb question, but bottom line here, any military equipment that Canada sells is going to be used in armed conflict, right? So, I mean, that's the whole point of buying these arms and and this equipment. So what's the distinction here? Is it the fact that it's ending up in Yemen? Um, Where does the problem come in in terms of the human rights question? Well, I, I mean, diversion aside... Um, arming Saudi Arabia is is problematic for many reasons, mm-hmm. right? Saudi Arabia is, um, all things considered, an opponent to even the basic enjoyment of human rights, uh, both at home against its own citizens, but also uh, within Yemen. So um, as Canada's arms control obligations apply, uh, Canada has to follow what's called the Arms Trade Treaty, which it became a state party to a couple of years ago. Um, if there's a substantial risk uh, that any weapons export, be it an LAV uh, or a rifle or a bomb or their components, are going to be uh, used uh, to breach international humanitarian or human rights law or be used to facilitate gender-based violence or jeopardize peace and security and so forth, Canadian officials cannot greenlight that permit. Um, and, of course, what has happened since 2014 and actually before is uh, the Canadian government has found, uh, in their words, no credible evidence that these weapons will be used to uh, violate human rights. When actually, at the end of the day, evidence doesn't even need to be found. There just has to be a substantial risk that these weapons will be used to contravene human rights, which in our report, uh, we, I think, conclusively make the case that that right, uh, those those risks are evident. Yeah, and I mean, and and as you mentioned, I mean, there's all kinds of legal frameworks, well, I guess not legal, but international treaties and and different agreements in terms of how arms sales will be done around the world. Canada is party to many of them, and as you say, Mm -hmm. this seems to be in clear violation of those two. Absolutely, and I would say they actually are legal, right? The Arms Trade Treaty is is an international legally binding instrument, um, as as is the the Export and Import Permits Act, which is Canadian law, which is how Canada domestically controls its arms obligations. So not only is it bad to arm Saudi Arabia for obvious reasons, but it's also clearly in contravention of Canada's legal obligations both internationally and domestically. Um, now, I, I want to go through here because this, this was brought up, this was raised, and the government did their own review and decided, I think it came right after Jamal Khashoggi was killed, as a matter of fact. The government did pause their arms sales to the Saudis, but they've started them up again? Uh, <clears throat> that's partially correct. Okay. So, um, and, and not to get too technical, but uh, what actually was paused was the issuance of new export permits. The export of weapons actually never stopped. Um, the, this report was um, researched and written over about an 18-month 18, 18 period between 2018 and 2019 following the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Um, and we actually saw weapons exports to Saudi Arabia increase by about 111% over that period. So whereas Ottawa frequently reminded people, well, we stopped issuing permits, Permits that were already approved were free to be exported again, and we actually saw more weapons exported in that period than ever before. Wow. Okay. Uh, you're not the only group raising alarm bells here, right? There's other ones, international groups, that are saying this is this is a problem. 
Absolutely, yeah. And it, it should be noted, uh, our co-authors on the report were Amnesty International. Yeah. But we, we look from a Canadian perspective. But uh, weapons are being supplied to Saudi Arabia by many countries, and there's groups just like Amnesty and, and like us plowshares across the world that are raising these alarm bells and have successfully actually seen uh, weapons exports uh, revoked in other countries, countries like, uh, to a certain degree, Italy, Germany, uh, southern Belgium. So where Canada says, you know, we can't just stop the deal, we have to honor the deal, we know that Canada, like other countries, has the sovereign prerogative to actually suspend these exports, which, once again, it, it is legally entitled to do so in this case. Um, last question here, in terms of when we're talking about the human rights situation, what's going on in Yemen, um, this has been well known since before these deals. So how long do these deals continue? Um, what kind of things, is it still LAVs and sniper rifles? And I mean, is the like, do they show any interest in saying, you know what, we made a mistake here and, and our arms are being used in ways that they shouldn't be? Or are they digging in? It sounds like, you know, doing their own review and saying there's no issue here. Uh, they're going to continue down this path. Well, the, from the perspective of, of the government of Canada, there's no issue here. Um, and at the end of the day, the government of Canada really doesn't like to talk about this deal because it is a dirty deal, right? Um, and in terms of what we actually know, uh, most of the deal remains quite secretive. Uh, we can't know basic tenets of the deal. You know, until recently, we didn't even know exactly what model of LAVs were being exported. And that was actually devolved through some uh, legal documents out of Belgium. So the, the government of Canada really pursues a policy of secrecy um, in its arming of these despotic regimes, in particular with Saudi Arabia. But it is not just LAVs and sniper rifles that we provide to the Saudis. We also provide things like um, trainers for aircraft pilots, which is very problematic because Saudi Arabia does uh, frequently violate human rights when it's conducting airstrikes. Uh, we provide a lot of electronics and software and that sort of thing. So it's not just LAVs and sniper yeah. rifles, but when we talk about the biggest ticket item, it certainly is these vehicles. Uh, interesting discussion. Kelsey, I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Anytime. That is Kelsey Gallagher, who is a researcher with Project Plowshares, uh, breaking down exactly how the Canadian government is in violation of their own policies. Uh, according to their research. And if you want to check it out, go to Project Plowshares online and you can see countless pictures and videos of uh, Yemeni forces using um, this Canadian equipment in ways that they're not supposed to be. Um, you know, the whole issue around this, when you're talking about supplying arms to, to countries, you know what they're going to be used for. They're going to be used in armed conflict. So, it, I understand that you you want to to say that we're not going to put it into a place where human rights might be violated, but you're selling weapons of destruction. Bottom line, right? I mean, it's it, it's all problematic, but it's billions and billions and billions of dollars. This is going to be an interesting discussion. In recent months, uh, we have seen Indigenous groups at the centre of some very key development decisions in our country. And we've also seen some of these groups speaking out in favour of these developments, the very developments that others have fought. There are two sides to all of these discussions, and in the simplest terms, uh, you're pitting the resource development against uh, economic opportunity for these groups. Now, a federal judge in a fascinating decision recently ruled that the entire consultation process in this country is biased in favor of the anti-development groups. And in the case 
that we're going to be talking about here, the centre of all of this and the decision that was made, the pro-development Indigenous group was shut right out of the process. And it happened right in our backyard. And there are other cases. So to get some insight on this, we're going to chat now with Heather exner Piro, who is the research advisor to the Indigenous Resource Network and a fellow at Macdonald laurier Institute. Heather, thanks for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Let's go through this recent um, ruling. It dealt with a case right here in Alberta, the Muscogee's First Nation, just south of Edmonton. So, so give us the background. What's the lay of the land in terms of what the development was and what the decision was? Right. So this is the coal spur mine, the uh, Vista Phase 2 um, in kind of Western Alberta. I know coal has been a hot topic in Alberta mm-hmm. uh, recently, and this is for a thermal coal project. And it had, there's already a phase one, and there was a, you know, they're expanding to a phase two, I think. And, and anyways, the ermine skin is actually um, the, the First Nation in, in regard here, the one that uh, appealed the decision. But they had an impact and benefit agreement signed with Vista. They signed one in 2013 and again in 2019 with the, with the expansion of the phase. But in the meantime, after they had resolved this impact and benefit agreement, which is a very typical strategy where, where industry negotiates with First Nations to kind of compensate for the development that will occur in their territory. And in this case, uh, uh, some, some, some groups that were opposed uh, to the, you know, the expansion of the coal mine, including environmental groups and some in other Indigenous groups, uh, they asked for the federal government to impose, basically, have the federal government look at it. So, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it's just under provincial jurisdiction, sometimes federal. Uh, it, it was interesting, and it wasn't in the op-ed, but in, in 2019, they did that, and the impact uh, assessment agency, the federal one, and the minister said that, no, this didn't require, uh, you know, federal oversight, a federal uh, order. And then, and in that case, they did consult with everyone. In 2019, they consulted with 31 different groups, including the Ehrman Skin, and they decided that no, this didn't need need federal, you know, oversight. A year later, uh, a couple of environmental groups and two indigenous groups, you know, wanted again to say that this should have federal review. Uh, in this case, even though they had, you know, uh, you know, consulted with 31 players, you know, simply the year before, they knew who they had to consult with. They only consulted with these environmental groups and two Indigenous people and totally left out the ermine skin. And so the ermine skin came back and said, you can't do this. We weren't notified. We weren't consulted. Uh, and that's what the judge found, is that, yes, this was wrong. And, and, and also not only, you know, not an oversight, but inexplicable, you know, that, you know, they knew who they needed to consult with, but seemingly just wanted to get rid of coal, only consulted with groups that they knew that wanted to have this designation order. So that's the situation in this case. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but the judge basically said this whole process is biased and you can't be picking which groups you consult with. If you're going to consult, you consult. You can't say, we'll consult with people that we agree with and ignore the others, right? Basically, that was said by the judge. Yes, and that's why, you know, when he said it's inexplicable that they wouldn't consult with the ermine skin. Um, and, you, you know, you, he, the judge, you know, judges are very, you know, straight laced. He didn't conjecture why the government would or wouldn't do that. But I think it's obvious to all of us the reason they didn't do it is because they wanted to shut down coal. And so they didn't consult with everyone, you know, people that might disagree with that decision. Um, and, and, and yes, and I, and I think what it's saying is what's new here is that they're saying there's a duty to consult not only to stop projects, not only what, you know, on the environmental side when it impacts hunting and gathering, but there's also duty to consult when you stop economic rights, when you impact the economic and social benefits uh, that communities, First Nations, can, can gain from resource development. So that's what's new here is now we see that the duty consult is going to be applied both ways.
and not those, just on the environmental side, but on the economic side. And those economic rights and those rights to development, those are protected by treaties that our country has signed with these groups, right? I mean, there's a legal basis. It's not just that it's the right thing. There's a legal requirement. Yeah, so, and, and that's where, you know, the, the ministry made the argument that First Nations Treaty and, and Aboriginal rights are restricted to, you know, the hunting, the gathering, the fishing, um, kind of those kind of, you know, traditional. Sure. Uh, I mean, those are very important activities for sure. But in this case, the judge said, no, that's too narrow. You know, let's let's be real here. It's, it's you know, 2021. Um, obviously, there are, you know, they have economic rights that go beyond just hunting and gathering. Now, this case that we're talking about is one of many, right? I mean, this has happened before. There's other cases we can point to where uh, uh, similar decisions were made and similar groups felt they, they were shut out of the process. So, so now, and now I think it's going to start to happen a lot because now there is some legal precedent for it. So when I think of kind of the more egregious ones in this current Liberal government's tenure, um, C-48, the, the tanker ban yep. moratorium on the D.C. West Coast, that was very unilateral. And, and there wasn't consultation. I remember even, um, uh, you know, I was working with some Indigenous groups that were testifying to the Senate, and, and Minister Mark Garneau came out and said that, well, they were representing, you know, private interests, so they weren't as important as the environmental, uh, you know, interests. And I was just dumbfounded by that. Just, you know, to think that because you have an economic interest that your, your, you know, your claims aren't important. So a lot of that was done without consultation, certainly without consideration of the lost economic opportunities. Northern Gateway, uh, another great example. The Arctic, uh, one I didn't mention, but the Arctic moratorium. Again, this was done unilaterally. Literally, you know, people in, in Arctic Kevin in, in Northwest Territories were given 24 hours notice before uh, Trudeau made a, a big announcement with Obama kind of on his last days to say that they're going to have a moratorium on Arctic drilling. But oil and gas and, and drilling and exploration is a big business, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in the Inubia region. So they were very disappointed in that. Uh, there was a lot of, um, you know, uh, you know, problems that arose out of that. Uh, a lot of felt, you know, people felt betrayed and lack of trust in federal government. Uh, and then, of course, the wet suet. And this, you know, this, is, this one raises my, my hassles. But um, we had 20 First Nations along the CGL route did a, did a lot of work, a lot of negotiations, a lot of consultations in their own communities. The elected chiefs and councils all signed agreements. Uh, and then, and then of course, there's opposition from hereditary chiefs. And maybe some of that was predictable, some of it was not. But the way that the federal and the B.C. governments really chose sides and decided to enter into just a tripartite MOU with just the hereditary chiefs on rights and title, totally excluding the elected chiefs and councils. Uh, and, and now NBC recently has, you know, given, I think, you know, around $8 million to the Office of the Hereditary Chiefs, whereas, you know, for the First Nations LNG Alliance, you know, they can barely, you know, get a few pennies in support for the work that they do. So it just, you know, all these things, all these things add up. And you can see that there is support for Indigenous groups that fit, you know, the mold yeah. and are opposed to projects no matter what. And, and, and there's many good reasons for many First Nations to oppose various projects. It's not that everyone supports every single development. But you can see where, you know, where, where, the, where, where the government wants to tip the scales, they always tip the scales in, in favor, I think, of the ones that are against um, these things that are considered unpopular. You know, in reading your piece, the thing that I I took away from it was, we often hear, well, why don't these Indigenous groups more, these First Nations, why don't they do more for their own people? And and it seems like, okay, well, they're, they're trying to. They're, they're trying to explore economic opportunities, and the government isn't even letting them have a seat at the table. It's really an impossible situation. 
I'm really glad you brought that up because I do a lot of work with First Nations and, and people who are business owners and workers, and I don't think the average Canadian understands at all what an uphill battle it is, you know, to work in this industry, to do things, to do things, you know, that they think are best in your communities. It's everything we do incentivizes just sitting and saying nothing and doing nothing because there's so much, you know, pushback when you do try to say things. And I, and I said, I do know of chiefs, you know, who've gotten death threats because they said that they supported a pipeline. And I do know on, on TMX or Line 3 or CGL where they may support it, but it's almost impossible politically to say that out loud, you know? Or, mm. you know um, so, yeah, it, every, all, the, all the things we do in Canada, I don't think people appreciate this, makes it very difficult for people to go get a job in the oil sands or start up a business or run a pipe uh, or sign an impact and benefit agreement. They, we do not understand kind of the social impact that that has on individuals that just the average Canadian does not face just for getting up and going to work. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So uh, last one, where do we go from here? Now that this decision has been made, like you said, we've got some legal precedents here. Um, How will this change things? I mean, does it mean that if an Indigenous group wants to be part of the process, they have to be included or they'll still be picking and choosing who gets to to weigh in? Well, I think that's the different calculus now that we'll see. So since 2004, 2005, that's when the duty to consult judgment came. And that radically changed the way that industry and government worked with First Nations in resource development. And I think, you know, there's been some, you know, hard times, but mostly for the good. And now we're seeing uh, that, you know, the majority of First Nations, we have to do the poll, 65% of uh, Indigenous people support resource development. But when they benefit, you know, so don't come in and, and just take everything and don't provide any jobs or revenue, yeah. but include them in the process. And I think we all understand that's there. So, that, but a lot of, you know, I guess anti-development groups, if you want to describe them that way, have used this duty to consult basically as a legal strategy. Knowing that on anything, let's take TMX, for example, if you can get some Indigenous opposition, you can delay, defer, make, make all these projects more expensive, more risky, um, and, and, and often they just result that they're not going to go through. And, and so we've seen how... Indigenous groups have been weaponized in a sense. Indigenous rights have been weaponized to be able to say no to these developments. And now I think we're going to start seeing some balancing there. That by the same token, you can use Indigenous support and Indigenous economic rights to say, no, you have a high hurdle to say no to this development if the Indigenous groups approve it on their territory. Which only makes sense, Heather. For goodness sake, uh, it seems to be absolute common sense. I really appreciate it. I think this is an important issue, and uh, thank you for your piece and for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. You bet. That is Heather Exner Perot, who is a research advisor to the Indigenous Resource Network and a fellow at McDonald Laurier Institute. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.